Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 13. Psalm 13. And I'm titling this message, What Do We Do With Our Sadness? What do we do with our sadness? So I'm going to go ahead and read Psalm 13 for us, pray, and then we can get started. So Psalm chapter 13, starting in verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come together this morning to consider your word, to consider what it is that you are um, saying to us in your word this morning, I do pray that you would quiet our hearts. Lord, that you would uh, help us to trust uh, that you delight to speak good words to us. Uh, Lord, that you delight uh, to tell us uh, how we are to live Um, to speak good news to us. And so, Lord, I do pray that in in this word that we look at this morning, that you would meet us where we are, Uh, meet us in our sadness, our frustration, our anger, um, our uh, inability to really even know where we are this morning. Will you meet us there, and will you take us where we need to go? Uh, I only stand here because of your spirit at work, and so I pray that you would work mightily. All these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't have to really explain it to anyone, um, but this has been a heavy last couple weeks in the United States. Uh, You heard Bob mention it in the prayer. In the past couple weeks, we've had two mass shootings. Uh, We had one in Buffalo, leaving 10 people dead. And then most recently, a a mass shooting in Texas, leaving 19 children and two adults dead. I don't know if you've, if you've seen just on the news, social media, just in talking to people, there have been so, there have been kind of varied responses to these realities. Uh, there have been some people who have chosen kind of to ignore this reality. Uh, and, and I think many of us can maybe understand why that is, because it's too painful to imagine that something like this could happen. Uh, there are many of us who might have uh, gotten angry about these realities that have happened, these shootings. Um, Many of us might be raging about it. Some of us might be obsessing over it. Others of us might be hugging our children tightly because we know how precious their lives are. Others of us might be arguing with people online, calling our senators about it. And listen, I'm not trying to advocate for one response or another, but I just want to point out, what do all of these responses have in common? See, all of these responses are dealing with something that should not be. All of these responses are dealing with life in a tragic world, life in a fallen, sad, broken world. And these are all attempts to do something with that sad reality. And so these tragedies, I think they kind of, they, they put their finger on what I would say is an important question for us to consider. An important question for Christians to consider, what do we do with our sadness? What do we do with the world around us that is not the way that it's supposed to be? 
What does a faithful Christian response look like in the face of all of these things that are so sad, not just out there in the world, but also in our own lives, in our own stories, in our own relational dynamics? What do we do with all of the sadness that we see around us? And this psalm that we're looking at this morning, uh, it, it really serves to answer that question. It gives us a path forward in our sadness. And the psalms, uh, I especially love talking about the psalms in this church because you sing them all the time. It's wonderful. So you intuitively understand how they work. The psalms were the hymn book of the ancient people of God. Uh, they were songs that were written for public worship, and, and they also were used throughout the history of the church uh, to be a guide for prayer, to kind of help people to know how to relate to God. But they're kind of different from most of our modern songs. If you're familiar with the Psalms, you know that almost at least close to half are what we would call laments. Laments. And a lament is just kind of a, a fancy way of saying it's a really sad song. A lament, it, it's a psalm that is bringing a troubled situation before God, and it is asking him to do something about it. And that's what the vast majority of the psalms actually are, are laments. And Psalm 13, in a lot of ways, is kind of the quintessential lament. It's one that helps us to understand what to do with our sadness. So as we consider that question, we're going to find three answers. First, we can call our sadness what it is. Second, we can cry out for help. And third, we can move forward and trust. So we can call it what it is, we can cry out for help, and we can move forward and trust. So first, we can call it what it is. If you would look with me to verse 1. Uh, it begins with this overwhelming emotional sadness. How long, O Lord? And then it continues on in these first couple verses. It says, how long will you hide your face? How long must I take counsel? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? It's it, four times in these short verses, it says this question, how long? Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist preacher, calls this psalm the howling psalm because it starts with this howling, deep question, how long? And in the original language, it translates something like, until when? Until when? How long is this going to keep going on? It, it kind of brings to mind when you were a kid and you were traveling and you're asking your parents, are we there yet? So essentially, this is what the psalm is inviting us to do. How long? Like, are we there yet? Why is this happening? But this, this psalm, it expresses this sadness in kind of a varied way. We see in verse 1, what I'm going to call an upward sadness, an upward sadness. It says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? This is a sadness that has to do with uh, the psalmist David's relationship with the Lord. He feels as if God has forgotten him. He feels as if uh, the, the God who in the, the ancient blessing of Israel was going to lift up the light of his face upon him. He feels as if God has turned his face away. The realities in his life, it feels as if the God who has said he is the covenant king, the one who is always faithful, David here is naming that it doesn't feel like that. Boldly. It reminds me even of kind of when you're in a, a spouse or, or an argument with your spouse. This is purely hypothetical not speaking from experience, um, but it reminds me of how when you're kind of getting into the argument, there just something comes out of you where you might say something like, do you even respect me? Like, do you even care? 
And, and of course, the answer is yes, but, but in the moment, it's just this raw, visceral reaction. This is what we see David doing with the Lord here. How long? So there's this upward sadness, but there's also inward sadness. We see this in the beginning of verse 2. He says, How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Think about this. This is expressing an inward loneliness. How long must I take counsel within my soul? Essentially, he's saying, how long do I have to be my own counselor? How long do I have to be turning these sad situations over in my mind? Aren't you going to do something about this intense, this loneliness, this anxiety, this despair that I feel? How long? And then finally, there's an outward sadness. We see this at the end of verse 2. It says, how long shall my enemies be exalted over me? And this psalm was written by David. And King David, of course, would have had plenty of enemies. Uh, At various times, there were tons of people who kind of had a hit out on him, whether it was Saul, whether it was Absalom, his son. David would have known what it would mean for his enemies to be exalted over him. So what is David doing when he he names this upward, inward, and outward sadness? What he's doing is he is calling his sadness what it is before God. He is naming it. He's saying, this is exactly what's happening, Lord. He's calling it like he sees it. He's saying, God, where are you? My heart is broken. My enemies are winning. And I think it's important to remember the context of the Psalms, okay? This is not David's private prayer journal. This is is a Psalm that was written for the context of public worship. Can you imagine coming into worship? Maybe you're having a good week, and uh, you know, you come, the call to worship, all of that stuff, and then Psalm 13 is queued up. And you have to get there and sing, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? That's what this Psalm is for. It's meant to shape us. It's meant to help us to to understand what to do in these moments of sadness. But maybe you're here, and as I'm talking about all this stuff, uh, you might, you know, even agree with kind of what I'm pointing out here in the passage, but there's kind of this lingering question underneath. What's the point of talking about all this stuff? What's the point of naming the things that I am sad about? What is the point of calling it like it is? What's that going to do? And I wonder, do we really, do we use this sort of thinking in our other relationships? Uh, Maybe you're here and you're married and you imagine that your spouse and you are having an argument, again, purely hypothetical. Um, But think, if you're having an argument with your spouse, it's not because you don't love them. It's precisely because you love them. See, because we love our spouse, because we have this covenant security, we can tell them when they say something that really bothers us. We can tell them when we feel completely missed and not understood. You see, a happy marriage, it's not the absence of conflict. A happy marriage has productive conflict. If you want intimacy with your spouse, the way forward is not to ignore that you don't feel close to them. It's to risk saying to them, hey, I don't feel close to you. And that's what David is doing here in this psalm, and that's what he's inviting us to do before the Lord. To name where we're at, to call it what it is. But again, I I know that doesn't resolve that question. Some of us might still be thinking, okay, I hear you, but seriously, what is the point of talking about all this stuff? 
There are some things that we just shouldn't talk about, some sadnesses that we don't need to utter. The best thing that we can do is stuff it down and not deal with it. What's the point? Because it's not going to change anything. It's just going to make me more sad, right? Well, I wonder if that's what you're thinking. I, I'm curious. It seems as if, when we think that way, that we have kind of an idea of what we need. Uh, that what we need really, fundamentally, is a change of circumstance. And we know that just talking about how sad we are isn't necessarily going to change our circumstance. But I just kind of want to push back on that. What, what if you don't actually know what you need? What if you don't actually know what you need in your sadness? Uh, what if your deepest need is not a change of situation, but a change of heart? What if God, in his wisdom, wanted you to say out loud what you're feeling? What if he wanted you to call your sadness what it is before him? Have you ever said something out loud that you were feeling and then you were shocked by it because you didn't know it was in there? What if God, in his wisdom, is inviting you to do that here? You see, I don't think God wants us to suck it up when we're sad. I, what he actually wants is to walk through our sadness with us. And so I think it would behoove us to ask, as we look at this psalm, this question, how long, how long, how long, this searching question, where in your life are you resisting asking that question? Where in your life are, are you running away from naming the sadness that you feel? Whether it's uh, something going on in the world around us or whether it's a relational dynamic in your marriage, in your friendships, where in your life are, are you scared to say, how long, Lord? Don't you see I'm hurting? See, this psalm invites us to ask God. It invites us to stop living as functional deists. It invites us to, to believe that we have a God who is our Father, who cares enough to let us talk about what's going on. But maybe that's not you. Maybe on the other side, you're thinking, well, God is so good, I shouldn't complain. God is so good, I shouldn't complain. Or maybe if I can phrase it this way, the end of the psalm ends with, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Maybe you want to rush to verse 6 before sitting through verses 1 through 4. We want to rush to the exultant hallelujah before we deal with the how long, O oh Lord. Uh, counselor Dan Allender says it this way. He says, our refusal to embrace our sadness is often an attempt to escape the agony of childbirth and build up the illusion of a safe world. It is an attempt to deal with a God who does not relieve our pain. See, I think in our avoiding sadness, in our, in our kind of hesitancy to name things that are sad, things that are difficult, uh, we're falling victim to having an over-realized eschatology. We're falling victim to this idea that if I'm a Christian, if I trust Jesus, everything should just be easy. But I would invite you, consider the man who you were following. Was everything easy for him? Did he tell you everything was going to be easy? No, he was known as a man of sorrows and well acquainted with grief. See, what if God is so good that he is okay with you telling him exactly where you're at, even if that means telling him that you feel distant from him? What if God doesn't need you to hide what you're going through? What if instead God comes to you and he sits with you in the sadness and lets you tell him exactly where you're at? That's what we see in this psalm. 
So we are invited to call our sadness what it is, firstly. But second, we can cry out for help. We can cry out for help. And this begins kind of in verse 3 here. Uh, The psalmist David says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Uh, These two words here, consider and answer, they're imperatives. This is a, a fallen human being saying, Consider me, God. Answer me, God. It's as if he's saying, if the problem in the first part was that he didn't feel like God was looking at him, what he's saying here to God is, look at me. Look at me. See, he knows the only solution for feeling forgotten by God is his remembrance. He longs for God to remember him. But then second, in verse 3, he says, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. What he's saying here is you recognize these inner, this inner anguish that I feel. I, Lord, meet me in this and bring comfort to me. My inner world is only characterized by darkness, and I need you to speak words of life to me, Lord. And then he goes on in verse 4. He says, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. He's saying here, Lord, be faithful to me. It's as if he's arguing with God here, especially in this last verse. He's saying, Lord, you have have come into covenant relationship with me. And if things go poorly with me, what's that going to say about you? He's arguing with God based on his covenant faithfulness. And I wonder, as I'm going through this section, as we're thinking about it together, how does that feel for you to make these sort of bold demands of God? If you're anything like me, it feels a little uncomfortable. And it feels like it might be presuming a little bit. In the New Testament, Jesus told a story uh, in Luke chapter 11 of a man who had a friend who was coming from a long journey. And it was customary in that culture, if you had someone coming from a long journey, that you would greet them with some food and something to drink because they would have been exhausted. So this friend comes in and stays with this man. He gets there at midnight. It's pitch black out. There's no grocery stores, anything like that. And the host realizes he doesn't have any food to give this man. And this would have been the height of shame in this culture, to not have something to offer a house guest. And so what does this man do? The man goes over to his neighbor in the middle of the night and starts banging on his door. And he presents the problem to this man and says, listen, I have someone who is coming. I don't have anything to give him. What do I do? And of course, the man, you got to be thinking, probably has a house full of people in this one room. He's like, man, I got kids in here. What are you doing? Like, maybe you should have thought about that beforehand. Well, he continues to ask. And then eventually, the neighbor gives him the food. He gives him bread. And and if you're anything like me, uh, making these sorts of demands of God, like David has done in this section, can feel exactly like that man. Like it's your nightmare. Like if I was in that situation where I was trying to uh, give some food to someone, I would have gone the route of like making my own sourdough before going to tell a neighbor that I didn't have anything. You see, the problem with this is, though, Jesus doesn't condemn this man. In his story, he lifts up this man who persistently knocks at his neighbor's door, asking for exactly what he needs as a model of what it looks like to pray with faithfulness. What it looks like to ask your father for the things 
that you need. Jesus lifts up this annoying, persistent knocker. What does that do inside you? How does that hit you? That that's a model of what it looks like to faithfully relate to God. Some of us might think that uh, praying that way or relating to God that way is annoying to God. It's annoying to talk about what's going on, to talk about exactly what you need. And if that's you, I hear you. I do. But I'm curious, where where do we get that idea? Because what we're dealing with right here is Scripture. We're dealing with God's words that he has given us on how to relate to him. And he encourages us to act in this way towards him. See, I think this feeling that we have of that we might be annoying God or that we might be too much, I think this kind of betrays something about our heart. You see, if we, if we read a story like that about this persistent man begging for bread, if this annoys us, my hunch is that we probably think that God is also annoyed by our needs. Or if we read this story and we get angry, we get frustrated, my hunch is we probably think that God is angered by our needs. But what we see in Scripture, what we see in the Bible, is a God who is our Father. A God who longs for us to come to him this way. A God who doesn't expect us to know what to do. A God who delights in his children coming to him boldly. You see, the good news that we see here is that we are invited to cry out to God for help. We can ask for exactly what we need. We don't have to play that game where we ask for the thing that's like two steps below what we need in order to manipulate. The good news here is that God, our Father, is more eager to give us good things than we are to ask for them. He wants us to talk to him so we can cry out for help. But then third and finally, we can move forward in trust in our sadness. So if you would look with me to verses 5 and 6. It says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Uh, I imagine you notice that there's a little bit of a change in tone in this psalm at this point. Uh, Verses 1 through 4 kind of read a little bit like a downer. And then verses 5 and 6, there's a, a pretty severe upswing kind of at the end of this psalm. So what do we make of that change in tone? Uh, even though everything in verses 1, and four, 1 through 4 are true, I don't think we have any sort of indication that there's been some uh, crazy change of circumstance. I think we have every reason to assume that the realities that David has named in verses 1 through 4 are still going on when he is praying and encouraging us to pray, verses 5 and 6. How do you respond to that change in tone? How do you respond to that? I I think for some of us, this is really difficult. It's really, really difficult to to talk about something that is really, really sad before God, to name something difficult, and then to all of a sudden be hallelujah, praise him. It's a huge struggle. How can God be good in the midst of the things that are so painful? They're they're not just sad in a sense of like, oh, you know, that's really sad. We feel these things in our bones often. We feel like, like David in another place saying that when he kept silent, his bones were wasting away. How can God be good in the midst of bones wasting away sadness? What do we do with that? 
But for some of us, this might be the only part of the psalm that we're actually comfortable with. We see here, you know, uh, an, an affirmation of trust, even though situations are difficult. Some of us would rather skip naming what's going on. Some of us would rather skip crying out what's going on and just focus on how good God is. We want to conquer our sadness with positive thinking. But what I want to submit to you is that in this psalm, we see something that that I think really changes the way we interact with our sadness, okay? The joy that we see at the end of this psalm in verses 5 and 6 is only possible if you go through the sadness of verses 1 through 4. The joy of the end of this psalm is only possible if you go through the sadness at the beginning. You see, sadness, it's a part of the Christian story. It's a part of the Christian story. See, the Christian hope is not that you'll become a Christian and that you're somehow going to sidestep death, pain, suffering, any of that stuff. No, the the Christian hope is that through death, through suffering, you will you will be resurrected. That there is a hope that is so unshakable that it cannot be taken away by even our own death. That is a radically different story. Every week in worship, we come together and we worship a man, Jesus, who is known as one who was a man of sorrows, as someone who is well acquainted with grief. The question is, why should we expect our lives to be any different? Why should we expect to be able to avoid these sadnesses? Our hope is not that sadness won't come to us. Our hope is that Jesus Christ walked out of the grave. And if we place our faith in him, so will we. That is our hope. You see, it is precisely through naming our sadness and crying out to God that we are enabled to move forward in trust. Our sadness, in a way that is kind of shocking to us, it it brings us closer to Jesus and it grows our faith. You see, Jesus experienced the sadness, the despair, the brokenness of Psalm 13 to the uttermost. Jesus knew what it was like for God to turn his face away from him. Jesus knew what it was like to be utterly alone in his inward anguish. Jesus knew what it was like to have his enemies gloating over him. And in dealing with our sadness, we can know his heart more. We can know more who he is. We can better understand the one who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped and held onto, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. You see, in our sadness, we can know our servant king better. But even more than that, in Jesus, we have a preview of the end of our sadness, of where it's going. See, in the story of Jesus' sadness, we get a taste of how everything is going to end. Because Jesus' sadness ended in glory. His sadness ended in the glory of resurrection. In the glory of lost and ruined sinners being welcomed home. In the glory of a restored creation. In the glory of him wiping every tear away from our face. In the glory of a beautiful story where everything sad comes untrue. That is the Christian hope. And you see, as we find companionship with Jesus in our sadness, we can also rejoice and long for the day that we will experience the fullness of resurrection joy. So as we look at our own sadness, and as we look at Jesus' sadness, I just want to close with this question for you to consider. 
If God can redeem the sadness of the perfect, spotless Lamb of God dying a criminal's death, what sadness in your life can he not redeem? Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, that you are not distant. Lord, that you are near. Lord, that you are not a God who um, spun the earth and just stepped back and did your own thing. No, you, you remain invested, so much so that you sent Jesus, you sent your spirit. So, Lord, I do pray that we would know companionship with Jesus in our sadness. That as we look out at the world and we say uh, with the eyes of faith, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And as we look in the mirror with the eyes of faith and say, we are not what we are supposed to be. I, I pray, Lord, that we would have fellowship with Jesus in our sadness. Uh, but I pray also that we would look further, that we would look through death to the resurrection hope that is given to us when everything sad will come untrue. I pray, Lord, that you would impress that more and more upon our hearts and minds this week and always. All these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.